1: Today, President Trump's administration unveiled its plan to dramatically weaken pollution limits on coal-fired plant- power plants by shifting most of the regulatory burden to states. This basically is another way to basically foster the coal industry, as President Trump has promised to do. Here to talk a little bit about that is Ethan Zindler, head of Americas for Bloomberg NEF, coming to us from Washington, D.C. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. So can we just start with an overview of what exactly President Trump's administration is trying to do here?
2: So first and foremost, there was an effort under the Obama administration called the Clean Power Plan that would have set a national goal of reducing CO2 emissions from the power sector. Uh, The goal was to cut CO2 emissions 32%. By 2030, uh, we're very actually very far along towards that goal already. Uh, but the new rule, which was essentially has now been rolled out by the Trump administration, uh, sets no specific long-term goals for CO2 emissions, and essentially says states you guys go away and figure out how much you wanna do on your own to try to address CO2 reductions.
1: Okay, so just uh, to give a sense, and this is something that you noted, that as of the end of last year, the U.S. had already achieved 28% of the 32% uh, CO2 reductions that it aimed to reach by 2030. In other words, it was really ahead of schedule. And I'm wondering, how much does President Trump's, how much do his President Trump's actions set us back or do they have no impact whatsoever?
2: Well this is one of those stories and especially someone here in Washington which is uh, I think you know gets a lot of attention justifiably because it represents the the perspective of the administration and the way they view climate and frankly whether they care about climate at all which is unclear uh, but it's very important to put this in the larger context of the trends that are going on in the power sector anyway. And as I mentioned, you know we've reduced our emissions 28 percent from 2005 levels already as of year-end uh, 2017. Our view is that the U.S. power sector will continue to decarbonize. Natural gas is cheap, uh, renewables are cheap, and essentially coal is getting phased out. And frankly, this regulation probably won't change that in any substantial way. So symbolically, it's important. But as far as the market's concerned uh, and as far as the U.S. emissions path is concerned from the power sector, at least in our view, is not likely to make a big difference.
1: Can you give us any update on the coal industry and whether there has been an increase in in jobs there or an increase in profitability since President Trump took uh, office? I'm looking right now at Peabody, for example, one of the big U.S. coal companies. Their shares are up more than 9 percent this year. So uh, they are beating the uh, broader large indexes.
2: Well, it's all it's all relative too. I mean, take a look at where they were. Yes, uh, they were overall. they were. Yes, fair uh, enough. Uh, fair and, enough. And and I think generally speaking, you know, I think there's been plenty of sort of favorable publicity around the coal industry with this administration saying they want to do more things and they are taking a number of regulatory steps to try to be supportive, but, I get, but, but our general view is that the, the economics are the economics, and gas is very cheap in the U.S., and the consensus view is that it's going to stay cheap for a very long time. Renewable prices have been down substantially, and with the tax credits to support them, they also undercut coal. So it's hard to see the U.S. coal power sector making a major uh, rebound uh, regardless of these various efforts.
1: You know, I want to put you on the spot here and talk about the flip side of, of coal and what you're talking about, which is the renewable side, solar, uh, wind, other types of uh, energy production that's considered uh, to be more environmentally friendly. The U.S. had been accelerating the production of those types of energy quite significantly under Obama. I'm wondering, has that changed at all, or has the pace of adoption continued to gain steam um, under President Trump?
2: Uh, I would say that you know we have seen a bit of a slowing on the renewables build side post-Trump Um, But I wouldn't directly attribute that to any actions that he's taken. There have been policies in place that essentially were due to sunset and we're coming up towards the end of some of those. And that's Mm. part of what sort of front-loaded some of the activity uh, sort of coincidentally into Obama's term. Uh, But generally speaking, you know, we continue to see projects get built. There is support for renewables at the state level on a policy basis. There are tax credits. But most importantly for renewables, the price of the equipment has just come down particularly for solar, so enormously, I mean, by the end of the year, to put this in context, a solar module uh, sold from a Chinese company will sell for about 25 cents a watt. I realize that means nothing to your listeners, but 10 years ago, that number was about $8 a watt, uh, $10 a watt. So the, the, the technological advancements and the cost declines have just been tremendous.
1: Okay. So I'm just wondering, going forward, how much can one presidential administration shift the policies and sort of shift the landscape for energy consumption at this point? And how much really is it just the market determining what people use?
2: It's mostly market. I think that the uh, administration can sort of try and steer a ship, but it takes years to try and make real adjustments. And I would also argue that some of the most important sort of policies that can affect uh, energy, the the, the course of direction for the power sector, are not ones that an administration can do unilaterally. You would need Congress. Um, so for instance, uh, if you really wanted to help the coal industry, the best thing you could do is probably create a new tax credit or subsidy to support that. But that is not something um, that the administration can do on its own. It's something Congress needs to help it with. And um, despite the fact that Congress seems very inclined to help this administration in a lot of ways, uh, I think people would say that that would be a tough thing to get through even this Congress. And certainly the one that's coming would be less, uh, would probably be less inclined to be supportive of something like that.
1: Given the fact that the Republican uh, part of the government is expected to lose some seats in the upcoming midterm election, is that what you're implying? Yeah, that does okay. seem to be
2: working people think is going to happen so far.
1: One thing I'm wondering is, if you stripped away all subsidies for solar and wind, would those uh, methods of energy production still be economically competitive with the fossil fuels?
2: Yes, in some places, no in others is the long long story short. If the winds are strong enough and the sun uh, shines bright enough, uh, projects are absolutely cost competitive. We're seeing that in places like Oklahoma and Arizona and other parts of the California and other parts of the world. The other question is how expensive is the existing generation from those fossil sources? Uh, it, it really varies from different parts of the country. Uh, but the l- long story short is right now renewables are cost competitive in a number of places around the. The world including number of prices in the United States, but not everywhere.
1: And Cole, with respect to that, is there anything that President Trump can do or that you're watching that will have material impact?
2: To support coal yep. uh, unilaterally uh, I think the Trump administration is trying to do most of the things that it has within its power to support the coal industry um, but it is uh, it is frankly just going to be challenging so long as gas prices um, remain low um, if they frankly if the administration wanted to do something to sort of artificially raise the cost of um, of gas production I don't know what that step would be tax or whatever um, that would probably also help coal but uh, again that's something that Congress Congress would probably have to be involved in.
1: Ethan Zindler, thank you so much for that wonderful perspective. Ethan Zindler is head of Americas for Bloomberg NEF, based in Washington, D.C. That's Bloomberg NEF. Uh, and uh, definitely an interesting time with some revocation of Obama era environmental rules. How much effect will they actually have? That remains to be determined. There are some companies that are in the, the intersection of some of the trade tensions that have been ongoing. And then there are some that face a changing landscape with respect to new regulations or regulatory rollbacks. Our next guest potentially is at the intersection of both, and that is Mark Vergnano. He is chief executive of Camours, which is based in Wilmington, Delaware. You might know Camours by some of its brands like Teflon which is sort of uh, uh, means so much to so many people, as well as Freon. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Oh,
3: happy to be here, Lisa.
1: So I want to start with the concept that this company has 45% of its business in the U.S. and the rest of it's outside of the United States. And I'm wondering at a time when you do have escalating trade tensions, how have you been affected?
3: Yeah, so if you think about trade, you know, and I know the administration today is is really trying to get this level playing field. Um, from from our standpoint there's lots of ways to deal with that level playing field. One one area is something that we are very uh important to us is the Kigali agreement. The Kigali agreement is uh connected to the Montreal Protocol. Basically, it's a business first, a US business first kind of uh, effective trade agreement where American can win, so it's it's allows us to. three agreement.
1: Can you just like lay out the, when this went into effect yeah, so and what it is? We
3: manufacture a refrigerant called Option, which is low, the lowest global warming potential refrigerant in the world, ninety nine point nine percent lower global warming than any other refrigerant. Many countries have adopted the Kigali Agreement, which allows the use of those in in relationship to. HFCs or or traditional refrigerants. And so here in the U.S., we want to see that adoption happen as well because it's going to benefit companies like Comores, companies like Honeywell that actually have developed this uh, molecule and be able to bring it in. So you can where jobs are created here in the U.S. because of it. Uh, manufacturing facilities are being put in place here in the U.S. because of it. And so it's a, a way for us to be able to utilize U.S.-based technology versus Chinese-based technology, which is in our refrigerants today.
1: All right, so this is actually really interesting because what it hints at is this idea that if the U.S. tries to go it alone and have a different set of regulations with respect to uh, curbing certain environmentally harmful uh, gases, that perhaps it won't be privy to agreements that will actually foster jobs and opportunities in the U.S.? Is that basically That's what you're right.
3: saying? That's right. It's effectively a business trade agreement that benefits and and creates a win for the US. So you're exactly right. You know, we're going to manufacture that here in the US, it's going to create 1000s of jobs because of it. And it's going to be exported to the whole world, but also can be used here in the US at the same time. So as we talk about trade, you know, it's it's about how do you how do you create free trade for companies like Comores? And that's really what we're looking for.
1: Okay, but arguably, I mean, if you're selling this, why does it matter whether the US is involved in those agreements or not?
3: Because the mar- it's a huge market opportunity here in the U.S. So 100% of automobiles in Europe already use this uh, uh, refrigerant. About half of the auto park here in the U.S. uses it. But stationary refrigeration, stationary air conditioning is really a driver for us. And the growth is here in the U.S.
1: This is really interesting to me. It also uh, makes raises a question of whether a greater proportion of your business is actually gone outside of the U.S. as you've seen some of these other countries adopted? Have you seen the mix of business shift more uh, to uh, foreign countries rather than the U.S. over the bunch? Well, of years?
3: well, it's interesting because as a as a global company, you know, we have, we're we the world leader in TO2. We're the world leader in refrigerants. We're the world leader in fluoropolymers. Um, but this specific uh, product we're talking about, which is uh, refrigerant, you know, we think of refrigerants as the old Freon, right? Option is the new Freon, if you will most of our sales are outside the U.S. um, because of adoption of these regulations. And we think This could be a great opportunity for the U.S. for business purposes. It creates jobs here. It's just not great for the environment. It creates jobs here, and it really rewards the companies that have developed this.
1: So um, I want to talk a little bit about some other policies that are being implemented, or at least uh, trying to be affected across the Trump administration. Anti-regulation has been a huge theme, and we've seen certain regulatory rollbacks, in particular today, with proposals to make it easier for coal companies to exist and thrive. I'm just wondering, in terms of your industry, have you seen a significant regulatory rollback?
3: We haven't. You know, we participate in the chemistry industry. Uh, So from that standpoint, we haven't seen a significant rollback. And, you know, the way we look at it is, you know, regulation isn't always bad for business. It could be a positive for business. You know, I gave the example of Kigali a second ago where it could be a positive. But at the same time, it can also create Clarity for a company in terms of how to operate so you don't have to operate differently state to state you can operate the same across so we haven't seen significant rollbacks that are affecting us but to us regulation if it's based on science and if it's based on risk can be very helpful to a company at the same time.
1: Um, I'm I was interested I saw a couple of articles about this pollution saga that's been going on with Chemours, uh and some North Carolina residents about a spill and what how much you're getting involved or not and, and one thing that I'm wondering is do regulations protect you in a way or uh, and if they did roll back some of these regulations, would you change anything about your business?
3: Yeah, for us, you know, um, so you, you mentioned the, the the situation that we're dealing with, which you take very seriously. Uh, again, we don't believe we have any health hazard, but the community doesn't like things being put into the air or into the water. So I don't think it would change the way we operate because we're going to try to operate within the, the realm of the community and what they want and what they need from that standpoint. But again, when you're looking at a level playing field across the US, it's hard to be able to navigate state to state. You want to be able to have something that gives you clarity across the whole US as you're operating.
1: That's a really good point and uh, one that I hadn't thought that much about. Thank you so much for being here. Oh. It's always it's really a pleasure speaking with you. Mark Virgnano, he is chief executive of Camours, uh, the leading. I guess, refrigerant company and, uh, and creator of Teflon and Freon and all of those things and the new Freon. It's based in Wilmington, Delaware, but he's here in our 1130 studios. The year of zero. Investors do not want to pay anything, and investment firms are realizing to keep said investors, they need to offer them free funds and free trading, evidently. Here to talk about that, Eric Balchuna Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Eric, to this morning's news, J.P. Morgan is planning to roll out a mobile brokerage platform next week, including free re- research as well as some free trading. Discuss.
4: Yeah and you you know you just hit on one of the things that was a, a buried lead in my opinion which is free research. Uh that's the department I'm in so uh knowing that it's going to start being becoming free uh hits home for me. Uh this is where we've been going for a while. Uh there's been a lot of startups like Robinhood or Robo Advisors, you know, on the streets you see people offering this stuff already for free and then you see Vanguard get in and then of course uh you know the big guys are going to follow suit and the reason is because people want it that way. Uh, the customers speak with their with their feet. And for JP Morgan to do it it's especially huge. It reminds me of the Fidelity zero thing where when you heard Vanguard offering free ETF trading, it's like, well, that's what they do. They're yeah. the, you know, but you know, when Fidelity went zero, it's like, whoa, aren't they the big active shop? And now here you have JP Morgan who people just don't associate with that kind of mentality offering free. So I think this is uh, equal to the Fidelity announcement in terms of just shaking people to their core uh, in the financial industry.
1: So you said this is what customers want. I also want free housing. I also want, you know, free incredible (laughs) dinners uh, with my husband. And uh, hey, it would be really nice to have uh, free manicures. People want a lot of (laughs) things free. They don't get them. And my question is, how can these firms be offering zero-fee funds and zero-fee trading? At what point do they make no money as a result?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. And so for let's go for just J.P. Morgan. One way they can do this is by free ETF trading. You can sell the order flow to market makers. Um, and that is worth something. Last year, Schwab made, according to Dave Ritter, my colleague, $114 million in selling that order flow of ETF trading and stock trading. Wait, wait, hold
1: on a second. What does that
4: mean? So, basically, they can sell to a market maker all of the orders that come in. They can then uh, offer that and sell that to a market maker who will then get first dibs on that order flow. Uh, for a very small fee, it might uh, affect the the retail client in a basis point. So it's minimal, but if you add all that up, you do get some revenue. It's not a lot though. Uh, some people overestimate this thing of order flow. They also, on the Fidelity side, with the free fund, People overestimate securities lending. That is not worth that much either. Yeah. Both of these cases, these are loss leaders, right? What they're really trying to sell you is, is loans, credit cards, in JP Morgan's case, or in Fidelity's case, active mutual funds. They have plenty of products that make a lot of revenue. And so I think they're just reading the writing on the wall, and they're going, look, uh, this is the way millennials want it, the, the, um, a, a lot of investors who are following them. Let's just go there now, you know, rip the Band-Aid off. And we'll work out how to make money uh, in other ways. But I don't really see uh, any other direction this is going to go because, again, this is what the people want.
1: So TD Ameritrade right now uh, shares down more than 5%. Uh, Charles Schwab shares also sharply down. I'm just trying to figure out, are we going to look at some kind of massive consolidation in the brokerage industry similar to what we have been seeing, or perhaps it needs to, frankly, escalate to meet analysts' expectations in the asset management industry?
4: I think you have to. All signs point to consolidation across the financial industry uh, because of this Intense cost obsession, whether it's a f- uh, cost obsession in expense ratios of funds or for free trading, um, you can't live on a couple basis points alone. Everybody knows that, right? So scale is one way to get cheaper, obviously, upselling them on, on higher priced products. The reason you're probably not going to see this kind of mass consolidation. Uh, right now or in the near term is the market has been so good to these companies. Mm. I just looked at, you know, active mutual funds alone have grown assets by $7 trillion just in the last 10 years on market appreciation alone. No flows. Yeah. So the market has really um, helped the financial industry not have to really face, this challenge. So I do think if the market gets choppy or goes down, then I think you'll see people sort of uh, looking to partner up um, and get scale and go cheaper.
1: You know, I have to wonder, there's really no free lunch, right? And I have to wonder when you start seeing all of these, look, no fee uh, funds or offerings, there are fees for somebody. Is someone going to bear the brunt of this, either through inefficiencies or extra costs elsewhere?
4: Yeah, I think that's the, the big case here. You have with uh, you know this idea of selling order flow, which yeah. is you know your own money. But again, I, I don't look. I know there's a lot of ways to look at this, and what's the catch, right? That's uh, that's what Vanguard uh, that were their reaction to Fidelity going to zero fee. But in this case, if you're a disciplined person, it's sort of like your credit card. You know, my wife and I use it a lot, but we pay it back like clockwork. It's more my wife. I, I'm a little lazier, but uh, we pay <laughs> it back like clockwork. I was going to say, really, no I'm kidding. <laughs> No, yeah, it's all her. I get to give her credit. If you can <laughs> really uh, discipline yourself and and not and resist temptation, I think you can really get basically free exposure and all of your investments and finances for almost nothing. I think it's the people who can't control themselves. Maybe you trade a lot and yeah. you get more involved in their, in their sort of like universe. Yeah. Then they upsell you. You start using options. Next thing you know, they're making a lot of money off you. So I think this is sort of the same uh, situation here. But mm-hmm. discipline will help investors who are looking to enter these free situations. Yeah. Um, and that's important.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like free drinks in Las Vegas, right? It's fine for people who are disciplined, but uh, for those uh, heavy gamblers, it might be tougher. Eric Valchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, always with insightful comments today on the race to zero uh, throughout the financial industry. President Trump is disappointed in Jerome Powell. He said in comments to a number of different uh, outlets that he thought that his Fed chair was going to be a cheap money Fed chairman. And he is disappointed that he's been raising interest rates. Joining us now to talk about that is Mark Spindel, founder and chief investment officer at Potomac River Capital, as well as Craig Torres, Federal Reserve and U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you both uh, for joining me here uh, from Washington. Washington D.C. Craig, I want to start with you and just get a sense of what President Trump said and how out of the ordinary it is.
5: Uh, it was uh, uh, not that dissimilar to previous remarks he made, which I think is why people are kind of sh- people are investors in particular paying attention, but not really saying this is something new. Uh, he's been complaining. It's on everybody's radar. Uh, The question is, you know, what does it do? Um, How does it shape the Federal Reserve?
1: So uh, among the comments uh, was a comment to Reuters, where he said, where President Trump said, during this period of time, I should be given some help by the Fed. The other countries are accommodated. Uh, Mark, come on in here. I guess that there is a big existential question that this raises about the independence of the Federal Reserve. Jerome Powell cannot be fired by President Trump. Does this matter at all from an independence angle?
0: I think it does, and, uh, and thank you for, uh, for the invitation to talk. I, I, I would first point out that, uh, though extreme, Powell could be fired uh, by Trump, though the uh, parameters and the reasons are, uh, are sort of very narrow. Um, but he could so-called Trump up some charges uh, to find cause in uh, Powell's actions. Um, I think I would echo uh, Craig's point that this is not necessarily unusual. Uh, presidents going back 40 or 50 years, uh, most spectacularly Nixon uh, criticizing his appointed Fed chair Arthur Burns, but I think most presidents have been upset with uh, with Fed chairs who are uh, tightening the reins on credit. What makes this somewhat unique uh, is that monetary policy is, by the Fed's own measures, quite loose, accommodative. Uh, they talk about that. That in their statements. So the fact that he's unhappy with loose monetary policy and that he's criticizing his hand-picked Fed chair is a bit unusual this uh, this early into the game.
1: Mark, you co-authored a book, *The Myth of Independence: How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve*. Uh, so clearly, you're skeptical of of Fed, Federal Reserve independence to begin with. But I'm wondering, does this type of rhetoric push the Fed further into the domain of politics rather than policy?
0: Indeed, and I, and I think you're talking about a century-old institution that sits uh, right here in our town and is very much in the political sphere. And the book that Sarah Binder and I co-authored talked a lot about the Fed's relationship with Congress. But I think the way presidents, in particular Trump this go round, are putting pressure uh, on uh, on the Federal Reserve and on Chair Powell, Powell directly, uh, will uh, potentially shape some of the contours and outlooks for interest rates. Again, we're, we're in in a tightening cycle, the Fed is still quite accommodative, but they're moving very gradually. Uh, and as they get closer to their own definition of neutral, uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see if they continue that gradual pace, yeah. uh, which may be interpreted as just uh, uh, sort of bending a little bit to the White House's demands.
1: Craig, uh, come on in here, because we're just weeks away from the September meeting where the Federal Reserve is widely expected to hike interest rates yet again this year. Uh, there is a question of how many more times they would hike what data points are they looking at especially given the fact that the u.s economy by some measures is growing at the fastest pace since 2005.
5: well they'll be looking at that but also the the jobs market continues to be very robust and perhaps most importantly that inflation is around their target uh, slightly above actually so You know, the Fed is letting the economy run, but to keep inflation expectations nailed down, uh, they need to gradually raise interest rates. However, I I would agree with Mark that here's an interesting fact, Lisa. I think the debate about QE during the financial crisis, nobody thought about the politics of it at the time. But if you stand back now, you know, and look at it, I think even Bernanke would say there were constraints on doing more than more than they uh, actually did at the time, and those constraints were political. So it's not like the Fed responds to political pressure, but it does feel constrained by it in terms of what they can do.
1: Well, and Mark, then I want to turn that back to you because, I mean, you could say in the larger scheme of things that, that Congress ultimately holds the strings when it comes to the Federal Reserve with confirmation and a number of other measures and, and sort of controls that it has. But for all intents and purposes, it's not like Jay Powell and other committee members are going to go to Congress people and say, what do you guys think? Do you think we should raise interest rates? So, I mean, there is a modicum of independence. And not going away.
0: Uh, Correct. And I think the term that Sarah and I uh, adopted in the book was interdependence. And, you know, to your point, Lisa, they're operating in this political sphere. I think the legislative threat is probably a bit far uh, even for President Trump at this point. Um, There there probably isn't, uh, indeed, in the House as we speak, the Republican conference is probably more hawkish, uh, certainly more hawkish than the president. So I don't think they would Uh, kowtow to the president's demands for cheaper money. Um, But that could change uh, in November. We could see a Democratic conference in the House. We could see Maxine Waters as head of the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, But there's very unlikely to be 60 votes in the Senate uh, to reopen the act Uh, Not to mention, what would they do? And that goes back, Lisa, to your point that I think some threats. uh, He could increase the heat on Powell himself. He could threaten to fire the Fed chair. He could stack some more seats on the committee, uh, on the board, with more dovish members. Um, And I think the the context and the environment is important. We are growing quite quickly. Uh, Inflation has ticked above their target and uh, and might continue to rise. The capital markets, equities in particular, are very strong. Strong unemployment is as low as it's been in a generation and again monetary policy is still loose yeah. uh, and the president's upset with uh, with money that isn't cheap enough
1: so Craig uh, given given that backdrop I was interested in what Atlanta Fed Raphael Bostic said uh, earlier this week or a couple of days ago anyway uh, where he was speaking and he said you know he didn't want to raise interest rates uh, to a point where he inverts the yield curve it seems like that's very much on uh, Federal Reserve members minds what do you expect how will that influence what they do
5: not very much <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right then there Agreed.
5: i i think the board staff has looked at this and somewhat dismissed it and i and i would add this if rafael bostic is so concerned about the yield curve then he should be arguing that they shorten the maturity of their portfolio and mm. sell those assets a little bit faster
1: that's really interesting. That's a fascinating point. In other words, steepen the yield curve another way, don't just yeah. stop hiking interest rates yeah. on the short end. Thank you to both. Fascinating conversation. Uh, Mark Spindell, founder and chief investment officer of Potomac River Capital, also the co-author of the book, The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. And of course, my thanks to Craig Torres, Federal Reserve and U.S. economy reporter from Bloomberg News, who always has fantastic stories. I recommend you read them.